Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grand Rounds. Uh, hope everyone is doing well. This has been a challenging time for all of us under no uncertain terms. Uh, the, the pandemic uh, continues in its course. I think here in Connecticut, we're past the peak for sure, uh, two, three weeks past the peak, uh, but getting challenges every day for new things that come our way. This uh, Friday, we'll talk about uh, in the Ask the Expert session, we'll talk about this new inflammatory syndrome, which is uh, affecting so many kids now. Uh, we have three kids, uh, Connecticut children, that have the syndrome and one of them in the ICU. So, so you please uh, tune in on Friday to talk about this uh, a little more. But today we're going to talk about something different. Uh, it's the uh, challenge of feeding difficulties. And we have a, a team of experts here at Connecticut Children's, and they're joining us this morning for Grand Rounds. Uh, so a little bit different than, than COVID, uh, although you can certainly ask them questions about COVID related to feeding difficulties in, in the household. And to introduce our panel uh, that of, of three individuals, uh, we're going to have Jeannie Kagan come up. Uh, she's the manager for occupational therapy. She's also co-manager for the eating team. Ginny uh, has been with Connecticut Children's since uh, it opened in 1996, and she goes back even further uh, to 1984 at Newington Children's Hospital. So she's been a, a good friend of Ann Melanie's. And if you're listening, I, I hope you know you're, you're there, um, and she, she'll represent all of you really, really well. Ginny uh, is a, a true uh, citizen member of Connecticut Children's. We're so grateful with for everything that she does and her team for so many kids that need her services. So I'm going to ask Ginny uh, to come up here and introduce her her panel. I think she'll introduce all three of them and then they'll uh, come up and, uh, and give you the presentation and then we'll have time for questions at the end. Remember to use the Q&A uh, element of the, uh, of, of the Zoom, not, not the chat area. Uh, that's the, the way to do it so we can answer the questions. And if we don't have time to answer all of them, we'll certainly respond to you offline. So I'm going to ask Ginny to come up. Ginny. So today we're fortunate to have with us three members of the Connecticut Children's Medical Center feeding team here to speak with you. And they'll be presenting on the unique challenges of children with feeding difficulties and what each of their disciplines and specialty programs here at Connecticut Children's can offer to help meet their needs. Kerry Byron is a speech and language pathologist since 2015. She obtained her master's degree in speech and language pathology from Boston University. She worked at Connecticut Children's since graduating and is currently a level three speech and language pathologist here at the hospital. She serves as an inpatient and outpatient clinician treating a variety of patient populations as well as participates in several multidisciplinary teams. She has also participated in several national presentations on autism. Caitlin Silliman has been practicing as an occupational therapist since 2014. She has worked at Connecticut Children's also since graduating from Bay Path University. Caitlin provides care for children from zero to 21 years of age with a variety of developmental challenges and serves on our feeding team as well. Caitlin has been presenting at conferences statewide on feeding difficulties. Catherine Sayer has been practicing since 2019 as a pediatric registered dietitian. She obtained her master's degree in nutrition from University of St. Joseph, and she's been here at Connecticut Children's practicing since graduating. She spends time supporting the needs of inpatients and outpatients and children seen in our feeding team. So who's coming up first? <laughs> so Carrie Byron will now come up and begin the presentation. 
Thank you, Jeannie. Um, so welcome everyone to assessing pediatric feeding difficulties. Um, we have no significant financial disclosures. Um, as you'll see, this is the agenda that we aim to achieve today. So we'll kind of start at the beginning um, discussing common feeding difficulties and take you all the way through our multidisciplinary multi feeding team approach. So the prevalence of feeding difficulties in typically developing children is very variable. So one study estimates that feeding difficulties occur in about 25 to 35% of typically developing children. However, a large scale study found that there's a really wide variable range of feeding difficulties, which could vary between five and 50%, depending on the definition of picky eating. Additionally, children on the autism spectrum have reported feeding difficulties, which can have um, impacts three times higher on scoring measures than their typically developing peers. Good morning, everyone. Um, so in feeding team and in our separate disciplines, we see a variety of feeding difficulties, including dysphagia, um, choking, ARFID, food selectivity, uh, picky eating, reduced independence, uh, G-tube dependence or NG-tube dependence, gagging, vomiting, um, and things like reflux as well. All right, hopefully you can hear me now. Um, so the impact of long-term feeding and swallowing disorders. Um, these are some of the things that can result of feeding difficulties that potentially go um, unaddressed or you know, may occur in their normal course anyway. So we're looking at things that range from um, aversions, whether they be food aversions, oral aversions, um, to more complex things such as aspiration pneumonia. Um, you know, down the road, certainly we could look at things like malnutrition. Um, GI complications, and then ultimately what we're looking to avoid is having to supplement nutrition through, um, you know, enteral or perienteral uh, nutrition. So what are some things that we can look at as preventative measures? Um, these are things that we're thinking PCPs can be discussing with their, their patients on um, you know, a regular basis when they come in for well visits, and that I'm sure you all certainly do anyway. Um, these are some of the highlights that we look to. Um, Cue-based feeding is a really big one. It's having that understanding that feeding dyad between the parent and the child where the parent or the caregiver is providing the child with appropriate pacing throughout mealtimes, they're not pushing, and ultimately they're not going to turn to that force feeding where we know problems can begin to arise. 
Um, meal times should be pleasant. We don't want to feel that meal times are becoming stressful. So any strategies you can offer for that. Um, working on structuring so we don't see grazing or overfeeding in certain periods and underfeeding in others. Um, and then working on that developmental guidelines. And that can be as simple as understanding when families should begin to introduce certain textures. And then as, you know, maybe more nuanced as having that maybe uncomfortable discussion that we shouldn't be putting other things in the bottle that aren't formula or breast milk. Um, because we know that maybe the family is telling us the child's doing very well with purees only to find out that they're only taking the purees via bottle, which is not a safe or appropriate way to do so. And then we really want to underscore that families have you as a resource and that they should be asking for support as they feel it's necessary. Okay. Um, so looking at um, the feeding progression is something that I'm sure everyone's familiar with. This is just a reminder of maybe when we would be introducing different consistencies, different textures, and the skill set oral motor wise that we're looking at to support those, and then the vehicle that we're getting it through. So whether it be a bottle, breast, spoon, and then progressing to those later utensils, finger feeding as the child becomes older. And again, making sure that it's matching up with what the child is, um, you know, where they are developmentally. So choking versus gagging, this is a very big concern for a lot of families. And unfortunately, the language becomes interchangeable when really it shouldn't be. Um, a lot of families are very concerned that their child is choking on you know, purees when they start to introduce solid foods and, they, and we hear the report that you know, they're choking, I'm really concerned, and all of a sudden it becomes, you know, do we need an additional study? Do we need to do an MBS? Is something going on when it turns out really the child is gagging? So we want to make sure we understand the differences and our families understand the differences. So at the very least, they feel comfortable and are not as fearful of these feeding experiences. Um, and then, you know, maybe so that we can make the appropriate referral. So understanding that choking is, you know, a sign of airway compromise and gagging is more of that reflexive um, response to something being in that oral cavity that either is triggering a gag response because it's too large of a piece and the body feels it's unsafe or maybe they have a little overreactive uh, gag reflex. So one of the things you can educate families on is a gagging can actually typically be distracted. Um, so if the child begins gagging and they can clap and they can praise and they can distract the child, then we know that they're gagging. If there is, you know, discoloration, if the child stops breathing, obviously this is a choking incident. And you can um, provide that education as to how to respond to that as you feel appropriate as a PCP. Um, so red flags to listen for. Um, these are some of the common things that we see when families come in, um, either on the referral or that they tell us. Um, and these are all things that can, some of them seem more innocuous than others, and you might be tempted to brush them off, but we really feel that, you know, the earlier you can intervene and provide that support for the family, um, the less of that snowball effect this, this feeding difficulty might have. So looking to see maybe they only do well when they're sleepy and, you know, they're drinking from the bottle and, you know, that eventually becomes a safety concern when your reflexes are integrated and you no longer have that sucking reflex. Um, suddenly maybe we don't really quite know what to do or maybe become unsafe um, airway wise. When we're looking at refusals, turning away from foods, if the child needs to be distracted, whether it be with the tablet or, um, you know, the, the parents sometimes report feeling like they're in a circus and they're trying to really keep them engaged in mealtime. Um, only eating in certain environments. We have children who refuse to eat at school or only eat for grandma. 
Um, another thing we hear is, you know, you might tell families, you know, mealtimes really should only last about 30 minutes if they're bottle feeding, if they're younger. Um, <clears throat> in general, we don't want to see that exceed that time limit. So the family says, okay, well, I'm going to speed up the feed and I'm going to put a faster flow nipple on there when maybe that's not the best course of action. And then sneaky feeding um, is a very common one you can find books everywhere you can find uh, internet articles, Facebook groups, um, and it is things like how to sneak in your serving of vegetables into your brownies. It's how to hide foods and it creates um, kind of a distrustful environment for the child where on the one hand maybe things are going well for the family but you're risking them not going so well. So those are the red flags that we really want to hear you um, pick up on and look out for. So what comes next? Um, if you're feeling you've already employed all of the strategies in your arsenal, maybe we need to take a step further. Um, if you have an order or referral in place, you can always seek out speech, nutrition, or occupational therapy departments for further assessment. And then I'm gonna turn it over to Catherine. So in the nutrition department, as dietitians, we go through the Nutrition Care Process, or ADIME. Um, so this acronym stands for first assessment. Um, so the things that we're looking at, um, interpreting and collecting different data, um, anything from the medical chart, biochemical data, anthropometrics, um, procedures, tests, all of these things within our assessment. Um, then D, diagnosis. The, the dietitian comes up with a nutrition-related um, diagnosis that we're hoping to individually um, make goals towards. Then intervention, we come up with some purposefully planned um, evidence-based goals or things that we're trying to um, aim. Finally, monitoring and evaluation, the M and the E in the ADIME. This is um, things that we're, we're looking for, criteria, um, to make sure that we're monitoring kind of where our interventions are, the progress towards our goals. Um, so as dietitians, we go through the ADIME method for a variety of different um, types of things, such as failure to thrive, uh, malnutrition, poor growth, eating disorders, obesity, excessive weight gain, um, enteral feeding plans or um, weaning enteral plans, micronutrient deficiencies, uh, selective eating, and also food allergies. Um, so first in our A, our assessment piece, we're looking at the growth assessment. So as many of us do every single day, we're looking at the, the growth charts, of course. Um, beyond the growth chart, though, especially with um, kiddos with feeding difficulties, we might be really looking into the growth trend. Um, so in the table up here, I have um, the, the weight gain velocity and also the length of velocity. So weight gain velocity in grams per day. We're looking um, not only at where, where the children are plotting percentile-wise um, and also Z-score-wise, but also looking at the trends. We may see a little one who um, really is plotting appropriately, looks okay, but we, we look back and we have a, a three-year-old who really hasn't grown in about um, you know five to six months, and that could be something that's concerning. 
Um, next in our assessment, our A and our A-dime, we're looking at pediatric malnutrition. Um, so what is pediatric malnutrition? We are looking at the imbalance between nutrition requirements, um, what kids re require, what they need, and their actual intake, what they're taking in. Um, and this imbalance can really, um, can really be a deficit in protein, um, in energy or calories, and also in micronutrients. And this can have a significant in, uh, negative impact on growth, uh, development, and other really important outcomes, such as uh, functional status as well. So with pediatric malnutrition, we're looking at various different indicators. Um, these indicators might be Z-scores, um, BMI for age, um, UAC, so mid-upper arm circumference, um, weight gain velocity, or unfortunately the lack thereof in kiddos under two. Percent of typical is what we're looking at with the, the graph that I had showed before. Um, things such as weight loss in kiddos who are over two, and also percent of estimated energy needs. Um, on this next slide here, I have some different sites um, uh, that we might be looking for in a nutrition-focused physical exam. So an RD, a dietitian, is looking at the NFPE, nutrition-focused physical exam. Um, we complete a head-to-toe exam frequently, especially with kiddos with feeding difficulties, to look to see if we're seeing any physical signs of malnutrition. Um, so we might be looking at uh, fat stores. We are looking at potential for muscle wasting. Um, we are looking at functional status, skin integri integrity, um, fluid status, presence of potential edema, and also physical signs of micronutrient deficiencies. Um, for subcutaneous fat loss, we're looking at the orbital, buccal, um, tricep, bicep, and also the, the lower back areas. For muscle wasting, potential muscle wasting, we're looking in the temporal, um, clavicle, acromion and shoulder area, the scapula, um, the inner osseous, and also in the lower extremities. Um, in addition to kind of the overall, um, what we're looking at in the body, we might see physical signs of malnutrition. Um, one kind of case example that I have for you, um, if I have an infant coming in and mom is homemaking infant formula, um, she found a recipe on Google, and I see that the infant has really dry, scaly skin, um, dry, scaly scalp, and maybe some dermatitis, I might be thinking it could be part of a bigger picture of potential essential fatty acid deficiency. Um, Nutrition-focused physical exams can be really helpful in helping us come up with nutrition interventions and also to help us look at kind of uh, a piece of the puzzle that we, we might need more information, more data to be collected. Um, next on this slide, we have some different nutrients, their functions, um, food sources. I really wanted to put food sources of some of these key nutrients because that's our ideal way of getting some of these, um, these micronutrients into little ones. And then also the daily value. Um, so a couple kind of case questions that we typically see with kiddos with feeding difficulties. Um, if I'm seeing a little one that really only accepts tan, um, crunchy kind of snack foods, no fruit, no vegetables, but does drink some milk, um, what are some micronutrients that I might be uh, concerned with? I might be thinking about um, vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin K, um, even fiber, and potentially potassium. 
Um, a clinical picture that we see frequently, I see um, a 14-month-old who's drinking about 10 ounces of milk uh, five times a day. I'm seeing potentially a beefy red tongue. Um, I'm also seeing pallor, edema. Um, I might be seeing even spoon-shaped nails. This could be an iron deficiency anemia picture. Um, so finally, after we've gone through much of the ADIME process, we did our assessment and our diagnosis, we're also making interventions. Um, so like I had mentioned before, these are the purposefully planned evidence-based recommendations that the dietitian is making based on the assessment. Um, so one key part that occurs very frequently is um, nutrition counseling and also education. Um, so counseling on things like just age-appropriate feeding um, for both variety and, and volume. This is questions that I get very frequently as a dietitian, um, especially in feeding team. Um, also, really talking about meal structure and how meal structure can set little ones up for success. Um, discussing my plate, which is shown up on the slide, talking about the variety and the balance of meals. This can be really important because we're trying to uh, prioritize the micronutrients. Um, education, high calorie diet education, um, iron deficiency anemia nutrition therapy. Um, breast milk fortification or increased caloric density of formula. And also, when clinically indicated, um, we may recommend different medical nutrition products, um, different oral nutrition supplements. Potentially, um, we might have a, a little one who's not taking something that's uh, creamy or milk-like. We might kind of defer to a juice-like uh, oral nutrition supplement, powdered calories, um, and different forms of supplementation so that we can make sure that it's widely accepted. <clears throat> so as a speech language pathologist, when would you want to seek us for one of your patients or children? Um, so we look at airway compromise, things like coughing, choking, um, difficulty with certain textures, so not being able to advance to solids because of inefficient chewing, um, inefficient bottle feeding, whether feedings are taking too long or too short, and then any signs of, for larger dysphagia, so um, pulmonary function, um, chronic lung disease, frequent pneumonias, um, illnesses that can't otherwise be explained that are taking a prolonged period for the child to overcome. Um, in that vein, um, if there are larger concerns for behavioral impacts of feeding, so children who may only like certain textures or only certain brands of foods, um, that's something that I would defer to our colleagues over in occupational therapy. Um, same with level of independence. If they're not using the appropriate utensils like forks and knives or spoons um, at their current ages and are relying on their parents to feed them, that might be something, again, that I would defer to our other colleagues. And then also, if the parent is not offering enough calorically, um, they're spacing out their feeds too long, they're not waking their young infant for feeds in the middle of the night and their child still needs that for growth, um, that's something, again, I would defer to my colleagues in nutrition. So if you're seeing any of these larger concerns for airway compromise um, without the three things we just discussed, we would be happy to see the patient. 
So one of the things we typically do to help optimize feeding is we adjust the flow rate and or the bottle system. So unfortunately, not all bottles and flows are created equally. And this can be really challenging as a provider, um, but also for myself as a parent. Um, you go to the section of Target and you look at the bottle offerings and they all have these generic markings, the zero to three month or slow marking or medium marking. And it's really problematic because one of the things that we found is that bottle flow rates can really vary. So a study by Paidos in 2019 found that the bottle systems and brands can all vary in terms of their output. So in this study, they um, attached most of the commercial bottle systems to a breast pump, and they measured how many milliliters in a certain time period each bottle was able to extract. And as you see, there's a very large variation across different bottles and brands. So if you look at a Dr. Brown level one, which is considered a standard flow nipple, that's about 13.31 milliliters in their allotted time. But if I compare that to the Philips Avent um, natural, let's see, it is 17.44. Uh, so you're really having a very large variation across the Avent and the Dr. Brown system, even though they're bo both marketing themselves for the same age group and both marketing themselves as standard flow nipples. Um, additionally, what we saw is that the bottle brands within themselves can also have a really large variation, which can be problematic. So as speech-language pathologists, we aim to match the child to the appropriate flow rate to make them the most efficient and the most safe, but also match the bottle system to the appropriate latch, depending on what the child is looking like clinically. Um, additionally, we look at things like diet modification and strategy provision. Um, so as you'll see, we currently use the International Dysphagia Diet Standards Initiatives. Um, Connecticut Children's was actually one of the first pediatric medical settings to use this um, and unroll it to the entire organization. Um, and what it did is it gave language, common language across all of the organizations internationally to use to describe the same types of foods and textures. So when we're looking at solids, we look at how easy they are to break down, particle size and things of that nature. And as you see, they're in a triangle where it gets progressively harder to chew and harder to manage. And then also additionally with liquids, we're able to classify different thicknesses of liquids. Um, so as a speech-language pathologist, one of the things that we do is provide instrumental evaluations, um, either through a modified barium swallow with our colleagues in radiology or through a fiber-optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing with our colleagues in ENT. And we use that information to look for signs of aspiration or penetration, which is basically where things are going the wrong way and either clearing the airway or going down into the lungs. And when we see that, we do everything in our power to stop that. So, you know, we will change position, change bottle flows, um, but ultimately sometimes what we need to do is change the thickness of that liquid to give that child additional time to swallow. So when that occurs, we work with the family as well as the medical team to get clearance to start on thickened liquids and help the family achieve a way to do so consistently with a recipe and testing that will be consistent from feed to feed. Um, additionally, we also provide information regarding paste bottle feeding. So really tipping that nipple um, down to empty while leaving it in the child's mouth to give them additional time to catch their breath. Um, and this can be particularly helpful in signs where um, the infant does have some airway compromise to help them catch up with their swallow, but also additionally with children who have reflux. Um, you'll often hear a parent who says, oh, they're really efficient with their bottle. They can drink an entire four ounce bottle in five minutes. 
And I, you know, I always say to the provider, well, there's a, a point where that becomes too efficient, right? The faster that goes down, the faster you run the risk of that coming up. time. <laughs> All right. So occupational therapy, um, what we want when you come to see us. Um, so basically, you should be looking to occupational therapy if you have um, concerns for behavioral feeding difficulties. This is most prevalently uh, food selectivity, um, that picky eating that we hear about so often. Um, you know, food-related anxiety, whether that manifests in a more clinical way, such as ARFED, or whether it's just that family's feeling that, you know, it seems like they're really uncomfortable at mealtimes, they seem a little anxious. Um, we're looking at oral motor efficiency and skill as it pertains to their corrected um, age if they are premature or their developmental state. We look at their level of independence in occupational therapy. This is a huge piece of what we do. We're always looking for people to be the most independent they can be with the skills that they have. Um, and sometimes this may mean coming in and we can do assessment for uh, the need for adaptive equipment or assistive technology, um, gagging, again, gagging, not choking, um, and stressful mealtimes where we feel that that family, that parent child, that caregiver child dyad is just really kind of grinding it out. It's not really in a good place. Um, however, that should be said that if there is an overarching concern for airway compromise um, and you have, you know, the feeding difficulties related to food selectivity, we, we would maybe want you to go and see that speech language pathologist first to get clearance to say, oh, you know, everything looks good or mm, maybe it doesn't and you can work it out with them first. Um, again, if you have any concerns for malnutrition or uh, nutrition-based uh, concerns, whether it be for weight gain or otherwise, then we would want you to refer to our colleagues in nutrition. So what we offer, it typically breaks down into two um, larger areas. So the one that you will see most prevalently used is called systematic desensitization. Um, and what this kind of breaks down into is what you're seeing right now in that circle. Um, graded exposure is something that we will typically start out with with most families and that can consist of breaking down the feeding process into steps that feel manageable for the child. So if the child is gagging and vomiting at the sight of a food, then that's where we're going to start. We're not going to expect them to take a bite of that food. If you think about it and someone offered you like the most repulsive food you can think of, there's no way you're gonna start taking a bite. And that's where we start with these children. We start out at square one and we gradually increase the level of exposure to a more um, well-rounded sensory experience. So we start out with a single sense and we branch into further ones. So maybe we start touching it. If they can touch it, maybe they can bring it up and smell it. If they can smell it, maybe they can kiss it. Um, we bring them closer and closer to eating until they get to that stage. And the most important thing to underscore here is that we don't progress to the next step until the child is showing comfort at the step they're currently at. Exploration refers to the process of looking at the properties of a food. Um, we do this in ways that are, that are exciting for kids, right? Nobody kind of wants to do this if they're kind of fearful, if they're uncomfortable, so we have to make it engaging for them. And we look at ways to do that, whether it be through science experiments, see which one's the hardest, see which food is the crunchiest, which one is wet, which one is dry. And these are fun things that families can do together at home as well. 
Um, when we look to reinforcement, we're talking about um, positive reinforcement because we know that that gets us the most bang for our buck. Um, so when we think about positive reinforcement, we think about offering praise. And it's really important to underscore that praise needs to be specific and it needs to be timely. We don't wanna praise too far after the uh, event has occurred that we're offering the praise for because then that connection isn't being made for the child that, hey, this is what I did really well. Um, so then the likelihood of it happening again in the future is maybe not as high as it could be if we were to offer it timely and if we were to be specific and say, I really like the way that you picked up that food. You were so brave when you smelled it. That was great. I'm so proud of you. Um, those are things that will make the child feel at ease, that will encourage them to be motivated to participate in the future. Um, games is probably one of the most exciting things we get to do as occupational therapists. You don't often get to play at your job, um, but it's skillful play. So we look at ways to make the feeding experience, and we usually call it a therapy snack at home, enjoyable for the family, and we practice that in our sessions too. So that might be you know, reimagining a board game to incorporate one of those graded food exposure um, opportunities that we talked about. So every time you pass go on the Monopoly board, we're gonna kiss that food. Every time that you spin the wheel on life, we're gonna, you know, X, Y, and Z. And these are fun things that the family can do and it can be broken down even further. It could be stringing pasta and you could string wet versus dry. It could be, um, you know, painting with different dips and using your uh, broccoli as a brush and licking it clean in between. So these are very simple ways that we can support families and children in their feeding uh, journey. Bridging is another one um, where we're looking at similarities between food. One of the things that we hear most often, I'm sure you do as well, is families feel stuck. They don't know what food they want to try next because everything they seem to try goes in the garbage. They spent so much money at the store. They bought all these things they were hopeful would be successful and then they weren't and they don't understand why. So we're looking for patterns of acceptance and refusals or rejection. So we're looking to say, hey, you know what? It looks like they really like this food here. So if they really like that French fry from McDonald's, maybe we can get them to try a French fry from the freezer at home. And if they really like that French fry from the freezer, hey, maybe we could try an oven French fry. Maybe we could try a baked potato. Maybe we could try a sweet potato. And suddenly we're kind of branching out within food groups and offering families a leg to stand on when maybe they feel kind of stuck otherwise. Um, if you are really interested in these, there are several experts um, who have their own specific programs. Like for instance, there's K2Me um, with their SOS feeding approaches. There are many of them out there. Um, if you are more interested in further education. Um, in contrast to what we just talked about, the systematic desensitization, um, there's something a little more clinical sounding. It's operant conditioning. So if you think back to Psych 101, this is kind of where we're starting. Um, and it looks at offering a cue, followed by an action, followed by the reinforcement or reinforcer. Um, so basically what we're saying is you're going to provide a cue to the child. And it might be something as simple as first we take a taste, then we get the tablet. Um, and I'm not by any means endorsing tablet as your first line of defense here, just an example. Um, it should be your last. Um, so we offer that cue. And then we see, okay, what's the child going to do? We told them what we would like them to do. Are they going to participate? If they do participate, 
then they get that positive reinforcement that we talked about. Hey, you just earned whatever we said. That's great. If they don't, okay, well, then we have to go back to the drawing board. And the thing that you really want to think about is having that reinforcement be something that is so motivating to the child that they're going to push through that initial discomfort and that action piece, that action stage, so that they'll participate. Um, because what we really know is operant conditioning is kind of like the heavy hitter in our, in our back pocket. We don't pull this out right off the bat. It's a really um, more nuanced intervention and it's for children who really don't have intrinsic motivation to participate in these feeding exercises. Um, so it's really important for us to, to reserve this. Oftentimes we will use this with children who maybe have um, applied behavior analysis services already because they really understand that cueing system um, or who perhaps have cognitive um, challenges that are that are preventing that development of intrinsic motivation at a more appropriate, age-appropriate state, um, or maybe they're on the autism spectrum and we really need to offer that additional support. Um, so again, we want to think about fading reinforcements. These are not forever strategies. We would think about gradual fading, and these are additional things that we will support families on. We don't necessarily bulk them up with all of these strategies, send them out the door. We try to, we try to wean them off of them as well. Um, so again, we offer caregiver coaching. I think all of us do. Um, we really underscore the importance of autonomy, so providing the appropriate independence for the skill and the age, avoiding force feeding, avoiding those tricks of hiding the foods, and highlighting that mealtime structuring, um, which we do in conjunction with nutrition to make sure the child is successful. And I'm going to turn things over to Carrie. So feeding difficulties are often multifaceted. So what do we do if a child has these multifaceted feeding difficulties that touch kind of on all three of the disciplines that we previously had discussed? Um, in that case, we would consider a feeding team evaluation. And what our team does, um, we are a multidisciplinary team with nutrition and occupational therapy and speech. And we also have psychology and lactation services available upon request. And our goal is to identify the needs of the family uh, regarding feeding, to provide cohesive strategies and model them for the family, and most importantly, to triage follow-up to the appropriate department or departments that may be able to help the family move forward. So here's just a brief chart listing some of the common complaints that we hear about feeding across each of our disciplines. And this is by no means an exhaustive list and by no means a black and white needs to fit in a certain box. Um, but these are some of the areas each one of us will look and assess. And when you're um, looking at a child to determine follow-up, you should be looking to see um, where their feeding difficulties lie. And if you're finding that most of their feeding difficulties would fit within one discipline, you should refer that child directly to that discipline. Um, but if you're finding that the difficulties are more um, you know, spread out throughout all of the disciplines, a feeding team evaluation may be most appropriate. Um, right now in our current COVID-19 pandemic, it has been more challenging to meet in groups. So we have been encouraging um, triaging appropriately for each of those disciplines, but we're more than happy to see with the multidisciplinary approach. So again, this is not an exhaustive list, but um, this is a common list of challenges and diagnoses that we see. So as you see, they are multi-system. They impact um, many different systems across many different diagnoses, age ranges, and level of need and severity. 
So we do have a psychologist who is available. Um, they look at the past experiences and current feeding and eating behaviors to identify ways to maximize that parent and child feeding dyad. Um, feeding is one of the most intimate things we experience and one of the earliest um, bonding experiences that families have with their children. And when there's any anxiety added to one or both of those um, participants in the dyad, it can add a significant amount of anxiety and, and alter that dyad. Um, they're also able to identify behavioral concerns that may indicate need for referral out to an outside psychologist and would be able to make that recommendation. So um, speech-language pathology is also present. So again, we're looking at the same things that we've previously discussed. Um, and I would like to point out that we are not able to do instrumental uh, swallow evaluations during feeding team. Um, we often will have families come in thinking they're coming in for an x-ray swallow as a part of their feeding team appointment. Um, we currently don't do those concurrently. Um, so we look at the safety and efficiency, texture recommendations based on developmental um, skill, um, and then take a look at the chewing pattern and see what they're capable of handling in terms of diet recommendations. And then we are able to identify any oral motor impairments that may impact PO feeding um, that might need referral out to something like ENT for a tongue tie, for example. Um, our registered dietitians, again, are looking at growth and malnutrition. Um, they're looking at food and drug interactions. Um, and they serve as a liaison to the primary care providers and the larger medical team to help kind of put the child on a growth plan that will look great for the future. And then our occupational therapists are also present as well. They're looking at the level of independence, the positioning needs, um, adaptive equipment, and most importantly, the need for outside occupational therapy services. All right, so when we are actually talking about completing the evaluation, um, we will start out with the dietitian recording all of those uh, statistics that you look for in your assessment. So the height, the weight, and the head circumference as head circumference is age appropriate. We have the oral MET completed and carried out by our speech and language pathologist, uh, the child's positioning and need for um, you know, adaptive or assistive equipment is assessed. And we have the caregiver interview, which is the really big cohesive piece where we all come together interdisciplinary and we get that feeding history that's going to be comprehensive and give us the information we need to make our clinical decisions. Um, we observe the child feeding or eating. Um, and then based on that, we can trial interventions in the session and based on those interventions and how they go, we can make appropriate recommendations. Um, what comes next? So potential outcomes from evaluation can range from a birth to three referral being placed. Oftentimes this is when the child is within that age group and unable or uncomfortable coming to outpatient clinical services or lives too far away to do so. Um, we would look obviously to see whether they would qualify for feeding therapy with the occupational or speech departments and whether they need additional follow-up with a, uh, the psychologist at an outside organization or with our nutrition department. 
Um, again, we would rec recommend practicing the strategies we felt were effective or will be the most clinically appropriate um, in the session and at home, and then follow up with that PCP. We'll circle back um, and encourage the families to circle back so they can have an ongoing discussion. But I really wanna underscore that is that um, as a team, we do not follow these children on an ongoing basis. This is kind of our triage unit. We don't see you um, as a team down the road. We will see you if you need nutrition and speech therapy, then those departments will see you independently of each other. They'll obviously communicate with each other, but the family is never back in that group setting. So questions? Thank you. Um, so if, if the three of you come, can come up front, socially distant. <laughs> sure. Uh, it, yeah, a little bit further out, and then we'll, maybe we zoom out. We can zoom out so they can see them. And All right. Um, thank you for, for an outstanding presentation. Uh, clearly, the, the team approach, um, as it says behind you, brave and determined, and that's, that's a good thing. And we have uh, <clears throat> a few questions. The, the first one, and hopefully people can hear me, this is from one of our uh, pediatricians, uh, Carrie Strime, uh, and, and Carrie's asking, as children switch from bottle to cup, parents will often say that they will not drink the milk from a cup, so they stay on the bottle. Any suggestions to make this transition easier? So either, either one of you. <laughs> well, so as you can see by us staring at each other. Is your, is your mic, mic, microphone. Oh, as you can see from us staring across the stage, this is an interdisciplinary question, so this is an excellent one. Um, basically, from an occupational therapy standpoint, I won't speak for Carrie in speech, um, what we're looking at there is making that transition and introduction earlier. So there is nowhere where it says that your 10-month-old, 11-month-old cannot have a cup with formula in it. Get the child used to the cup prior to switching what is in the cup so that it's not this completely foreign object with a completely foreign substance. A lot of families don't know that you can offer that outside of the bottle. Um, and that's a big way to kind of ease that transition, make that more comfortable, um, and give people a peace of mind because oftentimes it feels like jumping off a cliff. It's like, okay, here's the first birthday, and now all of this is gone, and now you have to try something new. It really doesn't necessarily work that way. At least we provide um, education on matching the child to slow flow sippy cups as early as six months old. Um, and that sounds really foreign because at that point the parents have really just gotten the hold of bottle feeding at that point. Um, but the idea there, um, if the child's permitted to have small amounts of water during meal times, is putting that out on the tray, giving them some exposure to the sippy cup and allowing them to have some experience to it so that the parent isn't feeling pressure if a pediatrician would like their child off the bottle by 12 months to have transitioned to a sippy cup immediately upon their first try giving them that sippy cup. And as the dietitian on the team, we will be looking at kind of what's nutritionally appropriate. Um, so like had, as Carrie had mentioned, if um, it's age appropriate and um, growth is warranting us to do so, we can start offering t uh, small amounts of water with meals or also um, doing formula or breast milk in the bottle versus the sippy cup and kind of working together to make sure that we're um, getting adequate nutrition. Thank you. Um, also, Dr. Spring, this was an excellent presentation, she says, so thank you, Carrie. Uh, my experience has been that families have dropped out of the feeding program because progress moves so slowly. Any suggestions? Fortunately, if you think about it, feeding is something you have done um, in one form or another since day one. Um, so we start the clock then, and that means that you necessarily, in some cases, when you come in initially at age eight, um, you've had eight years of practice doing something we need to fix. So it, it unfortunately is not a quick fix, and I think a lot of people are disheartened by that. 
Um, so we really need to make sure that as clinicians, we are underscoring the need for patients, that we are supporting families and understanding that it is a process. And we need to make sure that the strategies we are offering are increment, made in ways so that we can see incremental success and that we verbal, uh, verbally kind of bring that to the family's attention and say, hey, you know what, they are progressing. We, we maybe, we're still not taking that bite of that food, but they used to scream and run out of the room and they'll sit at the table now and tolerate it on the plate. And that's huge. Um, so, so looking for little victories, I think, is a way to um, encourage families to stick with it. And then also understand that you don't need to stay necessarily um, in outpatient therapy for years and years and years. What we like to see is we'll set you up, we'll give you some strategies. You work on these strategies when you feel like um, maybe you are coming to a point where you are seeing change or where you're not seeing change after you know whatever amount of time your clinician recommends. We recommend you come back, you circle back, you see us, and we will start to recommend the next set of strategies um, so that it doesn't feel like you're sitting with us for you know the next 12 years of your life. The strategies that we use also change as well. So families, I think um, it's a very large, they have to change everything about their family unit. And I think that, you know, a younger child may benefit from something more like a developmental food hierarchy, but as they get older to the preschool and school age, they may age into something like a food scientist program. Um, and I know we both hear it from the other discipline, you know, they'll have tried OT and come to speech and say, well, I didn't see any progress with OT. And then we do a lot of education about what they've already done. And we just, the child's a little bit older and we do the same thing or even a new thing. And that time it just clicks with the child. Um, I think families expect that therapy happens within the 30 minutes that we see them. And it really is a lifestyle change for the family. And unless those recommendations are being instilled in all of their daily activities, it's gonna take the child a longer time to make those changes. And as the dietitian, when I'm seeing these kiddos who are being followed on an outpatient basis, I try to reinforce, reinforce, reinforce. Um, we, we touched the, the broccoli, we licked the broccoli. Wow, that is a huge new strength. That, that is um, a huge step forward. So I try to um, really reinforce what speech and occupational therapy are doing and also spin it in a nutrition light. Um, show how important the, the small steps that we're making are for our nutrition status as well. Thank you. Uh, the next question is from Dr. Zelneritis. Uh, what is advice for situations with multiple and or changing providers feeding the patient? Um, that's an excellent question. Um, so working inpatient, we see it all the time. Um, you know, parents will come into our NICU and say, I want this PCA to feed the child because the child feeds best. Um, and while some of us laugh and say, you know, the child can do what the child can do, there is some truth to the fact that children do best with consistent um, feeders. And the reason for that, there was a great um, article that was released that described feeding as finding a dance partner. So if you're imagining that you're out on the dance floor and you're trying to figure out someone's tempo and match their dancing style, and then someone else comes in and switches with you as that partner, it gets hard to kind of figure out the dance and the rhythm. Um, so really being able to provide consistent feeders is really important. I think that's one of the ways that our medical center does such a great job is you see those same nurses on the same children, you see the same providers and the same caregivers. Um, ourselves on the units, we try to keep the same providers on the same families so that we're consistent to the child and consistent to the family as well. Thank you, sort of like the last tango in Paris, I guess is what, exactly. okay, very good. <laughs> 
Uh, also from uh, Dr. Zellner-Aitis, a recent study from Europe showed that uh, ENT endoscopy not inferior to fluoroscopy for detecting aspiration, no sedation or radiation with endoscopy. Do we re really need both? That's a great question. So they are looking at similar things but differently. So a modified barium swallow, as you guys know, gives you that view from the side, um, shows you the airway, those instances of aspiration really beautifully. Now, a fees, when you do an endoscopy, you have a bird's eye view of the larynx. And unfortunately, what happens during the height of the swallow is there's a, a portion of whiteout where you no longer have visualization of that larynx. Now, myself and my colleagues have good ways of identifying when we may have missed one of those instances. So we use um, a blue dye to help kind of visualize the vocal cords and identify those instances. Um, but one of the studies that recently came out found that when they're used in conjunction, they're highly sensitive to one another and provide additional layers. So endoscopy used after a modified barium swallow is an excellent uh, recommendation because you're reducing that radiation and you're being able to take a look at the child's progress without having to re-radiate them. Um, additionally, when you're doing a fees, what some of the research is finding is that you're better able to detect when residue is causing more of the challenge. So you get a better view of residue because you can see it sitting in the piriforms. Um, whereas on a modified barium swallow, you have to have a certain amount of contrast that gathers or collects on any structure to really see that contrast. Does that kind of get at the, the question? Okay. That's a great answer. Um, the next one's from Claire Bailey. It says, can you provide some suggestions for food selectivity aversion in a school-age autistic child who's extremely anxious and won't eat anything that doesn't look and smell right? Educational therapy. <laughs> yes, um, we would love to see you. Um, so you, you really just hit on our, um, our most, I would say, our largest population of feeders on our caseloads typically do tend to be these children who um, have some fearfulness, who have maybe an autism diagnosis and who are extremely selective. Um, so basically I would, I would, again, I don't wanna give you specific strategies without setting eyes on the child and assessing them. Um, but looking at those strategies that we, we discussed earlier of um, making it a mealtime experience that is pleasant for the child. So if you're feeling like the child is really anxious and really resistant, then we don't want to push outside of that comfort zone right off the bat. We want to make them feel comfortable at the table, whether that means just having them sit at the table and have a good participation where they're not screaming and leaving the table um, and finding ways to support them in that way. But I would say go to that systematic desensitization we talked about. Start at square one, start where the child is comfortable and work from there and really encourage patients in the family. But, but above all, I would say it's a good, good referral for OT. Thank you. Uh, this is from Dr. Blummer. Uh, uh, a sippy cup is a bottle in disguise. I always, I, always train an, uh, I always have them train in an open cup starting with one ounce in a shot glass. <laughs> so. Who would like to take open cup approach? Yeah, the problem with sippy cups is they all vary in terms of the oral motor um, needs that go into each one. So uh, a valved sippy cup with a um, spout requires more suction, whereas a straw a straw cup would require more labial closure or lip closure around that. Um, so it really does depend on what the child is looking like. Um, you know, if you have a child who was a really, you know, micro preemie who ha is really low tone, um, they may need some more um, types of cups that are easier to extract from something like a honey bear cup trainer or something like that if they're safe with it. 
um, in terms of providing an open cup, how old do you normally? I usually wait until about a year, eighteen months. So for an open I feel, cup. I feel it's it's funny. If you look at um, literature, it will say, like you said, that six month age is an appropriate time to consider it for some children who are maybe typically developing. What we do know is that parents are highly resistant because it typically ends up worn versus <laughs> consumed, <laughs> um, and believe it or not, mess does count for a lot. Um, so there are a lot of options that are spoutless sippy cups. Um, if the straw option is not something you're comfortable with, there are things like the um, 360, munchkin. and while it does require the Munchkin 360, where it does require a different pattern, it is a little more of that biting down versus that sucking. Um, it is a way to kind of not have them trained to that spout, that nipple-like um, protrusion on the cup. Um, but it's a way where parents can stay sane too. Another one is like the Playtex Coolster, um, where there's a valve option, but it looks more like a travel coffee mug. There's no spout to speak of. Multiple, multiple choices. Uh, the next question from uh, Dr. Scherzer, one of our pediatricians. Can you discuss the use of calorie supplementations, such as Pediasure in children with a thin habitus or food avoidance, or with appetite suppression, such as with a stimulant medication? Is it of value or should it be avoided? So this is a multifaceted question, and it absolutely depends on the case and the kiddo. Um, one indication that we see frequently a need for Pediasure, um, or a Pediasure-like supplement, maybe a Boost Kid Essentials, um, could just be overall inadequate intake. Um, so Pediasure provides calories, uh, protein, fat, and carbohydrates, in addition to a, a variety of uh, micronutrients. So sometimes we do find that it's clinically indicated. So as the dietitian, I'm looking you know, at adequacy, but my goal in uh, occupational therapy or speech, everyone's goal is food. Um, so we will typically work together to kind of um, see where we can wean and what strategies we can use. Um, frequently we try to do um, all oral nutrition supplements after meals, after snacks as physically able. Um, if we're only doing one per day uh, before bedtime, so it's really not impacting our meals, it's not impacting our appetite, and it's never, ever, ever used as a replacement. Great, thank you. Last question, um, uh, and this is a logistics also. With the school out and loss of services, how can we access services soon? Great question. We are up and running with telehealth for uh, ability of speech and occupational therapy. Um, so believe it or not, we've, we've had discussion amongst ourselves and this um, may not actually be as um, difficult as we thought it would be because you're actually in the family, so to speak, within their home environment, which is where children eat, which is the most natural place for them to be. Um, so that means that we are actually getting an opportunity we don't normally have, which is to be in their home during a mealtime and kind of see how everything looks, see how everything's working, see that dynamic at play. Um, so we are accepting referrals, I believe. Um, outpatient, nu outpatient nutrition services, um, we are not yet up and running for telehealth, but we are still seeing urgent patients in person. Um, so we are triaging in terms of as the orders come through, we're triaging in terms of need and ability for teletherapy, whether we're able to accomplish the goals, um, or at least for the speech department, in really high-risk populations. We are bringing them in in-house if it's clinically necessary. Um, things like would result in a hospital admission, have no enteral source of nutrition, um, those sorts of difficulties. 
learn a new word today, which is good, teletherapy. So it's <laughs> supposed to teletubbies. But, you know, <laughs> so uh, thank you uh, for, to the three of you. And, and Ginny, you have assembled a wonderful team. I, I'm really proud of what you're doing. And uh, from, from the questions that you received uh, and the number of people who joined, which were so over 150, they were really excited about what you're doing. So congratulations on a great presentation. Thank you for your service. And uh, for the audience, we'll see you again next week. Take care. Bye-bye.